You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, you are statistically less likely to end up with an injury compared to other kinds of building. <laughs> I am Freya Musk. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Alex Rowland, and this is episode 21, Medicine and the Concept of the Body. Hello, Freya Musk. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Hello. It is so lovely to have you visiting from your other podcast, which I have never heard of in my life. Um, No, of course not. Would you like to introduce yourselves to our darling listeners? Certainly. So I am Freya Musk. I write fantasy and romance and the occasional sprinkling of science fiction. And yes, I am one of the hosts of a podcast called Be the Serpent, which I don't think any of you are at all familiar Mm. with. (laughs) (laughs) And I am here today because my day job involves a lot of dreaming wistfully about ways in which the healthcare system could be better. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful. We are looking forward to taking advantage of your, your doctorly wisdom, Freya. Before we get started, though, I think we have a small announcement we haven't discussed on the podcast before. Is that correct? No, I think we, we did mention it in the last episode, but mm. we should we should keep mentioning we it. Should, so we should keep mentioning it. We are going to be special guests at uh, DFWCon. That's the Dallas-Fort Worth Writers' Convention, uh, which is happening in June, right? Yes, June. June. Yes. yes. Um, they have never hosted, had like a special podcast guest before, so we are their inaugural one. Uh, we're going to be recording two live shows there over the weekend, which is pretty intense, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, and I believe their keynote speaker is Delilah Dawson this year. So. Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. It's Delilah Dawson. They just shared that with us, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited she to hear a keynote. She is pretty She's cool. She's amazing. She's brilliant. Yeah. So gonna be great. if so. you are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area or the Texas area, or that is something that you may be interested in going to, keep that on your calendars. Um, depending on how the uh, coronavirus thing goes, more information will be forthcoming about whether or not the convention happens. But as for right now, it is still on the books. Yes. Yeah. And we are still planning to be there as of as of today. As of today, we are planning to be there. Yes, in June. Fingers crossed. Anyway, speaking of... As of today, which is such a, a great day to be talking about medicine. <laughs> yes! It's, how that it's timely. It's building. timely. Because we're in the midst of an official pandemic. Yeah. Hooray. Hooray. According to the World we Health s- Organization. We swear we did not plan this. Listen, so on Be the Serpent, we had the same issue. We just recorded a episode about plague narratives actually about about plagues (laughs) and we recorded that back in february and then coronavirus really started becoming a thing and we were like yikes uh (laughs) dang (laughs) so yeah let's talk about medicine though so so i think we can even kind of back up a little bit and go with bodies okay like like who has bodies i know it sounds like a stupid question but when you're dealing with fantasy worlds mm-hmm. you can certainly have situations where where characters or even protagonists don't have bodies right so i think that we can say for the for the presumption of like the fantasy world that we're building and for a lot of writing um yes 
people have bodies. People Characters have, bodies. have bodies. I don't but think it, we have established any ghosts. You, we have not established any ghosts or or energy creatures. Yeah, of, I don't think of we any have. kind yeah. or anything like that. Um, but that is a thing. That is a thing that happens, and those would be different conversations entirely about like how you think about health and sickness and wellness yeah. if you're not talking about well now i want a story bodies. about a ghost being a vector for disease oh yeah oh fuck yes. yeah yeah oh wow right back like right back now <laughs> <laughs> hell yes i was about to say oh man i want to hear about ghost medicine but that's even better <laughs> So when we're talking about medicine and bodies, like that ties into a bunch of stuff about like the cultural world building, right? Like the the way that people think about their bodies and the sort of like self-identity and relationship you have with your physical form, right? Definitely. And I think that, you know, when we think about self, there are a lot of ways in which our body and how we imagine our body and how we perceive our own bodies like informs and is informed by self so that's kind of an interesting like jumping off point even just asking for a character how does your character feel about his or her body does your character see his or her body as um as healthy or as as not well in some way like that's that can reveal a lot about how the character is understanding um like health and wellness or the opposite of that mm-hmm and on a cultural level, to what extent is somebody's body considered their self? Yes. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, is it really considered to be a reflection of the person within it? Right. And if so, what are the way, different ways in which people choose to change their bodies because of that? Right. right. Because we have all kinds of body modification that we do, you know, from tattoos to hair color. Um, Clothing. To even how we, yes, how we dress ourselves, you know, and all kinds of cultures have different kinds of body modification that reflects how they think about a body, how they think about how they occupy a body. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then if you add in all the options that magical body modification can potentially give you, if you do that in your world building, then that opens up all new doors about what your body can mean in terms of identifying of yourself. Or if your body is one singular thing because of what you could possibly do magically. Like if magically you could split yourself up into two or three or four, which one is you? Yes. Are all of you you? Like that's that's some fascinating stuff you can dig into. What I want Multiplicity. Is, <laughs> is what I want is magical tattoos, but like the bad tattoos that you get when you're in college and you're drunk one night. You know, like, this is a magical tattoo that I'm super ashamed of. It does, like, one thing, and it's ridiculous. Um, but that doesn't have too much to do with medicine. Uh, let's turn a little bit more <laughs> towards... Why did the lamp go off when you came stupid in? Stupid-ass tattoo I got when I was, tattoo. like, 19. Let's not talk about it. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about health and wellness and how a fantasy culture might define being healthy. Freya, as a doctor, do you have anything to say about this? Well, I think the definition of health has changed a lot over mm. the years. And where we are at the moment, I guess, from the model of healthcare that I practice in, there is a definition there are, you know, certain definitions that you can look up that will say this is what it is in words but I agree that there is a difference between the definitions of health of well-being and the absence of disease mm. because disease and illness also have specific meanings in a cultural context 
And then when we think about what does it mean to be well, I think we also think about things such as spiritual well-being and mental well-being and emotional well-being and social well-being. And obviously, I think if you're practicing medicine in today's world, you are considering someone's health along all of those axes. Mm -hmm. But a different culture may not, depending on how individual they are or how much stuff they actually put in the impact of a greater society on an individual. Yes. Yeah, there are several cultures which consider excessive greed to be a kind of illness like someone who is just focused on consuming more than their fair share or or hoarding things or just going to certain extremes um of of needing more than other people um is considered an illness and so there's definitely different kinds of ways that a culture can view what is even considered illness and sickness and how they define those sicknesses. There's a really interesting field called transcultural psychiatry, mm. which is to do with how different cultures present when it comes to mental distress mm. and specific kinds of mental illnesses that are defined or identified as arising predominantly or solely in particular cultural groups. Interesting. Because it is considered to be... I, mean, I think it's something that's not amazingly well understood as to why one illness with a very specific set of symptoms arises only in this group of people who have a culturally consistent explanation for what it mm. is. I mean, and even in our society, there are, you know, particular mental illnesses that we think of as, oh yeah, these would be universal. Like this is, this is just how mental illness is. This is how brains be when they are not functioning well, but you may not see manifestations of things that would appear in the DSM in other cultural groups and they would have completely different manifestations of mental distress mm. with different labels and different meanings on possibly a religious level but definitely a cultural level. Oh that's, and that's really interesting too just because I mean if you think about that you have societal and um, identity based expressions of mental illness in some ways that like for example men and women often will express depression differently mm -hmm. or will act out anxiety differently kind of based on performative stuff in some ways what's expected and so you kind of like cycle back into that but it absolutely makes sense that a society or a culture would impact how we kind of like order our behaviors and set up how we perform even when we are expressing distress right right yeah because you can think of symptoms as a way as something that is not something that arises out of a complete, sorry, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Symptoms, symptoms do not arise in a vacuum. And especially when you're thinking about that interaction between the body and the mind, symptoms arise as a combination of an internal state and the way that you were socialized, the way that you were brought up, the beliefs that you yourself have about illness and body will change how things manifest. I mean, the placebo effect for example, you know, your own beliefs as a member of society are going to change how you experience illness and how you manifest illness. And even the language that we have, um, even the language that we have to like describe symptoms, um, you know, one person is going to describe a certain kind of pain in a different way than another person does. And the question is, well, are they actually experiencing it differently? Or is the way that we are attempting to describe something just different? But also there is that cultural element of if you're experiencing symptoms and you are then report them accurately, knowing that you're going to, that that report is going to be trusted is very different than somebody who's going to keep those symptoms to themselves because 
they know that society won't accept it and things like that. I was thinking about how somebody made this comment on how Star Trek The Next Generation, everybody, like, will, when something weird is happening, will just come into the room and say, hey, this weird thing is happening to me. And everyone's like, oh, okay, let's find out what that is and deal with it, you know, properly. And everyone's, like, nobody's just like, you're just seeing things. You're just, like, no, every time it's like, okay, we are accepting what you say at face value and we will help solve this problem mm. for you. And that's always what happens there. But if your world building doesn't allow for that then you're going to have something different happening well that's not just the world building that's sort of like the structural requirements of a single what like 20 minute half hour episode playing into the necessity of the world building because like if you have like a limited amount of time to tell the story half an hour or so i don't know how long star trek episodes are then like you don't really have time to waffle on oh well we're not really going to believe you the first time you say it you have to be like here's the premise of the problem that we're solving this episode everyone immediately believes you now we're moving on on with the plot right i think that's something to keep in mind if you're writing fiction that if you are presenting a reading audience like a, a fiction consuming audience with a set of symptoms especially from your protagonist's point yeah. of view there is an expectation that it's going to turn out to be interesting or plot relevant right in some way and they're not just going to go to their GP and their GP is going to do some investigations and come back and say, are you stressed? (laughs) Unfortunately, as someone who works as a GP, you know, you, you try to take that incredible open mind, you know, new symptoms could be anything. Let's investigate. But the vast statistical amount of the time when it's a weird cluster of symptoms, that doesn't make sense there might be a weird thing underlying it or it could be stress. My dad was my dad was a medical doctor and he used to have an aphorism for this which was when you hear hoofbeats don't look for zebras. Uh, like when you have this this series of symptoms like you look for the most common and and probable cause for it. Uh, and like stress is a really common problem that can cause a lot of knock-on effects. Yeah, I was going to say too that um, I think that that um what Freya was saying about a reader has an expectation going into a book that if symptoms are described, something comes out of it and there's sort of like an arc that we kind of expect to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting thing to acknowledge and you don't have to challenge that, but I think that it makes the presentation of chronic illness or um, chronic pain difficult Mm -hmm. in fiction because readers don't expect to have a tag along the whole time. Yeah. Um, And so the idea that um, often in fiction, illness or disease or the opposite of wellness is acute. It is something that happens and then we surpass it, overcome it, we move past it in the narrative, it was an obstacle. Um, But in real life for many people, illness is not acute, it's chronic. It's something that they live with their whole lives. And I think that that kind of starts to skirt some questions of of ableism in fiction and um, in fantasy in particular, because so often, we we do have narratives that want to jump past obstacles quickly yeah. um or wave we a magic use, wand and you're cured we want exactly because yeah. we have magic so we want to make it like a, oh we'll just we'll get past this we'll move past and i think that that's that's kind of an interesting place to examine um kind of preset notions of how stuff is supposed to work in fiction mm-hmm. hmm, because i think if you have an ex- a character who comes into the narrative with an injury or a condition or pain and just lives through the whole narrative with it, acknowledging it, showing it's the impact on their life and what they're doing. It doesn't necessarily have to be a plot point, but as readers and also as creators, I think 
we're also struggling to find the middle ground between that kind of representation of how life is for real people in our world and this hammered in idea that you shouldn't put extraneous things in yeah mm-hmm. that if you're that you're presenting the yeah. reader with red herrings or that's just something that doesn't need to be there and why would you have two characters when you can have one person why would you give your character this thing that is not actually going to be important yeah and i think we are seeing a shift from that sort of very streamlined minimalist character of storytelling to actual representation and, and acknowledgement that people can have small things about them that might impact the way they go about their lives or even majorly impact the way they go about their lives that are not necessarily relevant to the prophecy right. or the magical plot. Right. In my book, um, not one of the ones which has been published, but the one that is on my agent's desk right now, um, my main character has chronic severe anxiety. Um, and there's ways in which this interacts with the plot, but um, it is something that he starts the book with it and he ends the book with it. Um, but at the same time, and like, he's always going to have it. Um, but the sort of character arc that happens is more his relationship to it and how he views it and himself and how he sort of learns to, to change the way he thinks about it and change how he deals with it. So there's definitely still story arcs that you can tell with this that end with it not being treated as an obstacle or something that can be cured. And on a world-building level, you have to decide how does the character's context think and feel mm-hmm. and, you know, judge the condition that they have. You know, is somebody with chronic anxiety, is that an acknowledged thing in this society that they live in? Is it something that we know how to treat it or at least how to approach it? Mm. Or is it something that would be considered an unacceptable weakness and must be hidden? Right, right. Like I'm thinking about um, Mary Robinette Cowell's Lady Astronaut books where the character's anxiety is a huge part of the the stumbling blocks for her in the first book because it's perceived as a weakness that she knows she has to hide it. And that's not to do with her. That's to do with the culture she's in. Right, right. So Hmm. I have have a question. Um, When we're... When we're writing fantasy, we're often writing a historical analog of some kind. It's it's kind of like the Middle Ages, or it's like the 18th century, or it's like the Renaissance, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And medicine was not necessarily well understood, or understood in the same way that we understand it now during those times. So how does that impact how you are um, writing the world, and how you're writing people's interaction with their bodies, and interaction with health and sickness? With me, I know it's one of those things that my editor is always making sure that I'm paying close attention to, where I will do things where characters get, you know, in a fight and get, you know, stabbed in the leg or get bashed across the head. And she's always like, you know, give them a reason or a chance to recover. Give that, like, or make sure that you're taking care of that. So, which is why all of my different... In all of my different series, I always have some secondary or tertiary character who is a doctor who can be like, or at least doctor adjacent who can be like, okay, I'm going to sew this up now yeah. and, and make a point of, of those elements. Freya, that, I'm, Freya I'm going to make a call out post against you because yeah. <laughs> you also kind of do this, don't you? Oh, I like injuring my characters a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I know how to injure them in such a way that I can then have them be where they need them to be for the next. Sometimes it's just mildly aesthetic injuring. Sure, 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 sure. 
So there might be some, you know, alarming bleeding and then there might be a sexy scar later on, but they're not actually not going to be able to get through the action scene that's coming up next. Right, right. (laughs) And also, people can take a beating. Like, I mean, I told that story a few episodes ago about when my great-great-grandfather and his brothers beat the living hell out of the guy who was, you know, having an affair with his wife and stabbed him multiple times and shot him three times in 1905. And he lived. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, People are pretty resilient. And I think you can take a lot of advantage of that. Even before we had penicillin and any good way of treating infection, people's bodies still fought off infection. Like it's not necessarily going to be unrealistic if somebody lives through a wound that might have been statistically very dangerous. Sure, if it killed half the people, your character can be one of the half of people it doesn't kill. But again, if you start introducing things like, oh, it's starting to look red, oh, there's pus coming out, you're doing it for a reason. And I think the readers need to, will have an expectation that this is going to become a thing. Mm. Yeah, and I think too, you know, when we think about um, injuring our characters in, in historical fashions, just the acknowledgement that a lot of people historically did not die of the injury, they died of the infection afterward, or they died of, you know, like, got transferred to a hospital and caught some typhus. And so, <laughs> some typhus. You know, oh no! <laughs> you know, and it's 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 not always um, exciting the way that that people went out historically. Um, so, kind of like either either playing with that or ignoring that because you do want to tell a decent story. And got the typhus is not always the yeah. most fun way to tell it. And looking looking back through the history of medicine, there's actually quite a lot of language that you can play with that had fairly non specific re- meanings when it comes to how people thought about and described symptoms. Mm. So one of my books is a historical fantasy and one of the characters' mothers has what we would probably think of as a chronic pain syndrome, possibly secondary to an inflammatory arthritis and depression secondary to her chronic pain. And the words used by the characters are rheumatism and melancholy. Mm, Yes. Because those were the words that they had (laughs) to describe that kind of symptom cluster. And these days, if you said the word rheumatism, everyone you know, sort of knows what you mean, but a doctor would say that's meaningless. Like that doesn't actually mean anything in terms of our current knowledge of disease. Mm. And probably in 50 years, there are going to be words that we are using today to describe symptom clusters or to describe illness syndromes that are just as meaningless because we have a sharper and more specific understanding of what caused them. You know, one of my favorite historical terms is that I ran across. It's, it was in, in an 18th century treatise and it was the laudable pus okay and it was that your your the wound is is forming pus and it is well it's there is a healing process going on and now we know that pus is not exactly a good thing to see Mm. um when when a wound is healing um but apparently this particular person writing the treatise believed that it was a sign of improvement or healing or the body is responding in some way so it was laudable it was the well i laudable. mean technically pus is part of the body's it immune it's response healing, it's, it's your body process. trying hard to get all of those white cells to where they need to be <laughs> right <laughs> that's fascinating why freya perhaps you can tell me this why were they so obsessed with bloodletting as a thing I'm not entirely sure because I haven't read a lot about the very specific... There we go, Rowena knows. Rowena knows. I mean, basically, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, it was a lot of it is to do with just this sensation like we know that inflammation is a basic response to a lot of injuries and illnesses. And so people would be flushed. They mm. would look hot. They would look warm. They would look to somebody whose knowledge of anatomy or medicine is from 
you know, we know that people have blood and it goes around and it's oh, We know people have blood. <laughs> yes, shame. That may, and it would look like an overdose of that, the oh, hot red stuff. Yes. You have too much. Let's get rid of some. Huh. And, and actually, a prime reason that people really did think that bloodletting was working is they, they thought you had about twice as much blood in your body as you actually do. So that was part of the weird calculation is they really did think that you might have too much or in, in a more precise way, an, an unbalancing of the humors mm-hmm. or so if you let some of the blood out then the humors will rebalance themselves um so they they were basing their calculations off of an improper understanding of how much blood you have and then believing that if some was let out then your humors would re- rebalance and um you know again this this idea that you could be choleric or phlegmatic or these different terms melancholy of, of and melancholic too. you know yeah. i don't remember all of them but um so you would rebalance the humors. And there's also, I mean, if you've ever given blood, I don't know about everyone else, but like, you kind of feel good afterward. Like, I did really? a good thing. Like, this kind of oh, okay. lightheaded so, euphoria. Yeah, you know? And lightheaded quiet. euphoria. And so I think that they, in some ways, were actually misinterpreting that. It's like, oh, you feel better. Like, like no, I'm, I, I'm kind of in mild shock and experiencing blood loss. But, yeah. I mean, know, I get the, feel, I've gotten the lightheadedness, but I haven't. about myself. I haven't gotten the euphoria. I just feel kind of bleh afterwards. Yes. <laughs> it's true. Like, bloodletting. No, I, I felt like last my gay but it was like I did a good thing. I mean, yeah, you like, get the no, euphoria no, from doing a good thing, yeah. but that's like more you're about to pass out. <laughs> I was going to say there might also have been that a placebo effect of this is a thing that's supposed to help me, so therefore I must be feeling better because why would the doctor do something that wouldn't help me? Yeah. So therefore I am feeling better. Yeah, and that that I was going to say that I think. One thing, in terms, from a world-building perspective, I love the idea of medical systems that contain some out-of-date things that nobody has bothered to test that rely on a completely outdated model. So bloodletting was done long after we actually believed in the four humours as the primary way of understanding a body and understanding sickness. But what you said about people believing that something is good because a doctor tells them, one of the big shifts that has happened, I think, over the last century is also to do with the extent of power distance between a doctor between a medical professional and a patient Mm. and from a social world building perspective that is something that i think about quite a bit because i do a bit of training of general practice registrars so doctors who are going to become um, specialist gps here in australia and quite a lot of the people who come and join the training program were trained overseas in different cultures and i have done some really interesting Um, workshops on social differences between Australia and some of the other cultures that people are coming from in terms of core social beliefs and how they relate to medicine and one of them is to do with um, like social distance of prestige and the extent to which doctors are considered to be authority figures that are not to be argued with Mm. and so for somebody who grows up and trains in a society where that is that distance is very large and they are used to doctors not being questioned Coming to somewhere like Australia where, you know, there is considered that people can go out and find their own health information, they should be getting a very informed consent, they can, you know, have a conversation with their doctor about what's best for them and say, no, I don't, I don't agree, or what's your evidence for that, that can be very, very difficult. Mm. And those people can be perceived as being bad doctors because they're not communicating in a way that is socially acceptable in their professional role. Fascinating. 
There was an interesting book, and it's been a long time since I read it. And um, like thinking back on it, there may be some problematic, weird things about it. But the concept was really interesting, and it was called um, "When the Spirit the Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down." Mm, that's and a great book. And it's thank you. I I couldn't. I'm trying to remember things about it, but it's the idea is it's following. Um, a family with a child who has epilepsy, if I'm remembering correctly, and just the ways in which this family who are from Vietnam understand the illness and understand what they are supposed to do about it and understand it even as an illness, because they actually also see it, if I remember correctly, as um, there's a spiritual element to it. Mm -hmm. And just the, the language barrier for one thing, but also the ability to communicate those ideas from their doctor um, and the rest of the medical staff working with their daughter, it's, it was, it's a really interesting read about that, you know, how do yeah. we understand who a doctor is in relation to me? How do we communicate medical ideas? How do we communicate concepts of illness? How do we communicate concepts of spirituality? Yeah, I was just looking up to try and remind myself of the details. Yeah, it's about a, um, a Hmong refugee family from Laos. From Laos, thank you. Yeah, and then they, they um, interact very strongly with the healthcare system in America because of one of their kids and, and this disease she has. It's a really interesting book about cross-cultural medicine and models of disease and what can happen when you have a clash between the two. Mm, that is fascinating. Um, let's talk a little bit more in depth about building medicine as part of the world building. So one of my favorite things to do when I'm world building medicine is to use like concepts of medicine that are, like we talked about this a little bit earlier, like using the concepts of medicine that are a little bit outdated. Do we have any other examples of those that people could use in world building? Besides, well, there's what is trepanning. Um, the Freya, do, did yeah, I say that right? Does trepanning have a legitimate medical use, Freya? Is that the one where you're just knocking a hole in the skull, or is that the one where you're like? Yeah. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, for you, like, yes. It's yes. not so much yeah, knocking yeah, yeah. a hole in where the you... skull, it's like drilling a hole in the skull. In drilling it. a skull. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, that, that's basically the, the, it's still a medical procedure that is done today. It's just now that it's done in a, you know, by a neurosurgeon yeah. in a hospital with a proper drill <laughs> under sterile conditions. Right. Um, but it has a specific <laughs> application, which is for if somebody has had, basically got a hematoma inside mm -hmm. their skull and you need to relieve the pressure on the brain then yes, knocking a hole in the skull is how you do that. Yeah. One thing that you can build on is that often some of those techniques might have been generalized in an unhelpful way. So that's a, that's a technique that has a really useful um, and specific application for one condition. Mm -hmm. But if somebody is like, ooh, we knocked a hole in this person's skull and you know, they got less, all of their symptoms of you know, increased brain pressure disappeared, you may then find a culture that starts doing that to everybody who has any symptoms of increased intracranial pressure, even if that's due to something that isn't blood mm. gathering under the skull. And, you know, you would hope that medicine would test that and be like, okay, when we knock a hole in the skull and some blood comes out, then it's effective. When we knock a hole in the skull and there's not nothing there, it's less effective. But you can, I think, for you know, medicine and the development of medicine is about trial and error. Yeah. It's about people using models and techniques that for as long as they work or perceived to work and then hopefully ideally replacing them with models and techniques that work better but you're always going to have resistance like right. the, the guy who invented hand washing i was just about to bring that up yeah <laughs> so lister lister yeah who's who's 
insistence upon hand washing saved many, many, many lives and revolutionized medicine was ridiculed in his working lifetime for his ideas. Weren't there some people like rivals of his who were like, actually, I think it's beneficial if you don't wash your hands because you're washing off all like the good stuff that makes people better? <laughs> Probably. I mean, this is the thing. It's, it's about what model you are yeah. going from, but it's also about what is in your self-interest. Right. And I don't think you can overstate <laughs> the importance of inertia. Yes. You're going to do what we've always done and self-interest. This other thing would be more difficult, expensive, or, you know, make me look bad, so right. I'm not going to. Time-consuming, or like, right. I've done it this way all this time, and if I'm suddenly proven wrong, then that would be shameful for me, and I would feel, even like, personal embarrassment can be a huge, huge thing. Even if no one would blame you for not knowing any better, like, you can still stick to your beliefs about what is the right thing to do if it's just something that is going to be, like, humiliating for you later on. Yes, and I'm very interested in points of change in medical yeah. systems and medical belief, and... Possibly in five years' time when I do actually get to write the plague novel that I want to write, <laughs> with which I am putting firmly on the back burner for yes. now. I think that's one of the things I want to play with is this idea of shifts in conceptions of medicine and conceptions of disease when presented with new evidence and the ways in which those are resisted. And while we were talking about earlier, you were the, the book that you and Rowena were talking about reminded me... There is an excellent episode of Babylon 5 where this one minor alien race like comes to the station and their son has, you know, something wrong with them. And the doctor's like, oh, this is just this thing. I can fix this with surgery in five minutes. And they were like, you're going to cut into our son. Are you crazy? His soul will escape. And the doctor's like, are you crazy? This is a simple thing. And it becomes this whole like battle between you know what they want for the son and him like i can just save your son in five minutes if you just let yeah. me and he he eventually then like does it behind their back medical yeah. ethics and then yeah because he's like i he, he his character was very much this i know the right thing to do damn it and i'm gonna uh, do it kind of thing mm. so he does it behind their backs and he's like you're gonna be fine and this is gonna be great and you'll be and you'll live yeah. so that's better and like the moment they walk into the hospital again after he's done it they see the sun and they're just like oh my god you ruined it like they knew immediately on site that like something had happened and therefore his soul oh, had escaped that is fascinating especially from like from a medical ethics perspective, there are like, this is a thing that happens and this is why there are boards of oh, yeah. guardianship. Like if, a, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, are they the ones who don't believe in blood transfusion? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, okay. Yeah. So an adult Jehovah's Witness is allowed to refuse life-saving treatment if it goes against their religion. And they just have to have it documented that they have explained to the doctors that they understand the risks and they are choosing to refuse treatment. And that, that is the right of every autonomous adult in mm -hmm. this society. But the child of a Jehovah's Witness family, the doctors can apply to have medical guardianship of that child taken away from the parents and given to basically an independent board who mm -hmm. will make that decision on behalf of the child because it is considered that, that child is not making a decision in their best interest because they're not allowed to make the decision. It's their parents who are making it. Right. And medical ethics, and a lot of that is to do with, you know, where do you put the balance between respect for parental autonomy and respect for the fact that without this treatment, 
the child might die. And mm. it's only done in very serious circumstances. It's very rare, but it happens. Yeah, yeah. That's the example that you were talking about, Marshall, is also fascinating because you start wondering, like, okay, you assume that they have this issue with surgery because it has something to do with the sanctity of the body. Like, the body cannot be violated in any way, right? And so you start wondering about what right. the scale of violation is. Like, if the child skins their knee, is that going to let the soul out? Like, how how much of an injury counts? Um, and is right. it, like, depending on a certain place in the body? Like, are limbs okay, but the torso is not okay? Um, like, a lot of cultures consider the chest the seat of the soul. Um or is it the depth of severity of the incision that makes a difference? Is it something to do with how much time the wound is open? Like if it were just a quick stabbing and you like hold it closed real quick, does the soul not escape that quickly? Um, and that leads into a lot of other questions about like what do they consider the soul to be? And um, they must consider it some kind of physical thing if it can escape from your physical body. Hmm. And that example you right. gave... It means that you, as well as thinking, what do people believe about the body? You have to think of to what extent are they correct? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that situation that you described is positing that there is actually something about this particular race that will escape if right. the body's integrity is breached in that way. Their belief was actually founded in fact. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking a lot about conceptions of disease and conceptions of medicine based that what we are saying from a modern anatomy, physiological point of view are incorrect. But, I mean, you're writing fantasy. What if they are correct? Yeah. What if the four humans right. is absolutely how bodies work? But al but also, when you're writing fantasy or writing science fiction, and you have different fantasy races or you have aliens, you can then set up very different biological rules for each yep, of them. Exactly. And how, how the medicine works for that and how those can interact between... Like, if you have a fantasy world where you have multiple races, and let's say your medical medical technology has things like blood transfusions can elves give blood to humans and vice versa i mean if you have a world where elves and humans can mate and create half elves then can they also give blood right. like these and like, are does these that... are fascinating questions and if they can give blood well it's a question it's not so much a question of can they give blood. It's a question of can they give blood without making the person who's receiving the blood fucking die. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you can I mean, we, you can give that, blood from anything. That was really. the intended <laughs> subtext of can they give blood successfully? In a useful, yeah, <laughs> but we suspend we suspend modern medicine and disbelief for per fantasy purposes all the time when it comes to blood. Just look at vampire narratives. Exactly. Like what what is the basis for if this person sucks my blood and then I devour some of their vampire blood, I turn into a vampire? There's nothing. That's just biological nonsense. Yeah. But it's part of a narrative, and we're like, okay. That's just how vampires work. And so you can do anything. You can come up with some complete biological weirdness. And if it's a different race or if it's a magical race or an alien, you don't necessarily have to have it making sense on a biological level because it's magic. Yep. Yep. Right. I mean, Star Trek does that all the time with their aliens because they have all sorts of cross-species mixed characters that are, there's, you know, half Vulcan, half human. There's half Klingon, half human there's a character that's half Bajoran, half Cardassian. They're, I mean, they've set up a world where every species can have children with almost any other species. And that's, you know, biological 
wackiness but that that's the rules of that particular world and if you make that the rules of your world then run with it and see see what sort of weird fun you can have with yeah we were talking about magic let's talk a little bit more about the intersection between magic and medicine because in many cultures those two things are kind of the same like the practitioners of medicine are also your magicians and that also can tie into like what your what the rules of magic in your particular world are because you have that's a thing where you need to make decisions of can people just be healed magically or does that not work or does it work in some cases but not others and that that's a fun thing to play with that was in my book (laughs) thank you for doing the funny voice (laughs) you're welcome i made the decision that magic could not be used for healing okay that was a very specific rule i i decided to put in because i wanted that not to necessarily be an easy like step of like well you got stabbed in the chest but guess what since joe's here he can just lay his hands on you and boom you're fine because then i could then also when i needed something to be weird and be like wait that's not how things are supposed to work that was a an avenue that i had right there of like oh that's that's something different because you can't do that with magic right and i think once you start thinking about like well i do kind of want magic to have some healing abilities like once you start thinking about like the actual process of healing and what part is the magic impacting and is magic good at all parts of healing like using magic to lower someone's fever that's great but a fever can in some cases be an important part of the healing process right freya like doesn't the heat the fever burn out the virus i don't know i've got like kind of a medieval approach to medicine myself (laughs) yes like a fever is part of the body's response to yeah illness it doesn't mean that if you you can't take down a fever because they're not going to get better and we know that you know very high fevers just make people feel miserable they can occasionally cause seizures in kids but yeah you know yeah you have to think about it on a certain level you're right about what is the magic actually doing and i developed a great amount of frustration with the harry potter world building around healing and tell us about healers (laughs) when i started studying anatomy and then when i started studying medicine and i wrote a fanfic about it because i was angry (laughs) (laughs) what are your problems with harry potter look it's nothing to do with something being particularly illogical i think it's the same thing that pops up whenever you dig too deeply into any one corner of the harry potter world building which is that if you try and dig down to a level that makes sense you're not going to find anything because Mm. her approach to world building was as something comes up we'll put in something that seems cool and when you're writing books for kids that is fine you do not have to explore every level of the magical system but There's just so much weird stuff like, oh, you're just going to lie here in the hospital bed while we give you a potion to make your bones regrow painfully. And we can kind of fix these things, but if you get cursed in this way, you just die and we can't fix it. And everything is so, like, their whole systems of fixing everything are very magical. So I was like, do do, do wizards get cancer? What do you do about cancer? Do you know what it is? Do you have a magical cure for it? And if so, how do you justify not giving it to muggles? Like, it's just... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Once or... you start digging, things get weird. There's also the whole element in there of like muggle medicine just confuses them because there's the one plot point where Ron's dad, who just like loves everything muggles, when he gets he gets attacked by a thing, he's like, "Hey, 
Muggles do this thing called stitches. We could just try that. People were like, are you crazy? What are you doing? Just sewing up your skin. Are you a madman? That's yeah. Yes, but also if you don't learn heard. basic science at high school, which one does not at Hogwarts, how do you have a basic understanding of what anatomy is? Like they must have a magical model for how the body works. Right. And then they have healing magic that is consistent with that. One assumes that witches and wizards have the same anatomy as us. So, do they just get different diseases? Do they ha- like how do you function That's as a fine. healer when you don't understand the, how the body works? Or if you do understand it on a completely different level, how does that interact with illnesses and injuries that non-magical people get? Right. Right. They can they can magic away a broken bone, but they don't understand how a bone actually heals itself because yeah. they never and if, they never But if you really don't understand how a bone that. heals itself, how do you build up a spell that does it? Is my, is yeah. my thing. Like, <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Because where does the magic come from? <laughs> yeah. And the question you asked about, like, do they get magical illnesses? I feel like I... I feel like she mentioned at some point, like, magical measles or something like that. Yeah, and like, there's a lot of, like, wizard hexes. Kids get, right. Which, right, which, like, why are... Why... Physiologically, aren't the muggle kids getting magical measles? Like, what is the source of this? Where does it come from? Why do only magical kids get it? If you are a wizard who has not, like, born to muggle parents, are you at risk for magical measles? Yeah, and at that point you have to start saying, are they technically, on a physiological level, a different race? Yeah. Like, a different species, even. Like, if there's something about your biology that means you can make magic... Is that same thing about your biology means that you are susceptible to completely different diseases? Mm. Mm. Do they do they have some separate magic fielding organ that yeah. does like this moves called... the energy through <laughs> their the body? It's the pineal gland. That's what it does. <laughs> no, I yeah. was going to say it's like, the golden like... core, Freya. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the golden core. But like, is if you delve into like the biology of it, then because they have, then it's mostly. If your parents were were wizards, then so are you. Except there's squibs and there's mm-hmm. whatever, like clearly the there's some some punnet square nonsense going <laughs> yeah, on here about nonsense. dominant and recessive genes. Yes, but <laughs> like, but who knows? Yeah, who knows? well that's why that's who why knows? this this book that I want to write with a magical medical school is me wanting to try and tease out how you would actually write a magical system and magical medical practitioners that coexist mm-hmm. with non-magical medical practitioners and non-magical medicine like in a society that has healers why is all medicine not done by them and you know who who has access to them if there's only a small amount of them compared to people Mm. who are just trained in normal medicine and how do people fit together magical and non-magical models of disease and illness yeah so that will be a whole lot of world building fun that i get to dig into (laughs) (laughs) i also think it's interesting to do world building about who like where this um sort of inherited knowledge comes from like what do you have established schools is it more of an apprenticeship program um is it something that is still being developed like those are all questions to ask um when you're doing your your cultural world building um because i think for most of history it has been more of an apprenticeship kind of thing where you have a local healer or a midwife or something and you are a small intelligent child who is interested in gross stuff 
uh, and you sort of just follow her around and learn at her elbow as she as she does all the things. Or, or else you are a fourth son and your parents are looking for a respectable profession for you. And even right. if you have no particular interest in medicine, capital M, you know, being a city doctor is a respected profession and you're just going to, you know, be apprenticed to such and such. And that will give yeah. you, you know, a setup in life. And yes. I think you're, you're right. You have to think about what society thinks of medical practitioners and different types of medical practitioners and how does that mm-hmm. play into how they think about gender and you yes. know, midwives and headwitches and people who are herbalists, usually women, not getting a much respect. And then you've got the men who stride around with their bags and their leeches and their sores are considered mm-hmm. you know, upstanding professional members of the community. But they're still tradesmen, so they're still below a certain level of you know, social status. And right. you can do a lot with how society thinks about the people that heals it. And that would, again, reflect how they think about disease. Yes. Like, whether they are tradesmen, as you say, or whether they are, like, the spiritual and magical practitioners as well, or religious figures, because in, in some cultures, like... Probably in the Babylon 5 example that Marshall gave, like, I would guess whatever, because, like, there's so much tied up with the spirit and the body of that alien race, I would guess that their medical practitioners are in some way going to be religious or spiritual practitioners as well. Because, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, they don't delve too much into anything else with that species. I don't think the species ever shows up again. But, I mean, they come to the station to help their son because yeah. there is no other options yeah. for them And you them can make anywhere. inferences based on things. Yeah. Um, but we're getting towards the end of the episode. So as is tradition, uh, we are going to ask Freya to contribute some world building for us. Uh, it can be on theme or, or it can be completely random. Okay. Do you have something for us, Freya? Yes, it is going to be on okay. theme, and it is going to be something, it's going to be a social ritual related to medical students. Okay, love this. So this is this is something that can happen all across a particular society, if you like, or it could only be in a single city. But among all the medical students, the day after their final exams to be qualified as doctors or healers, they go out into the wider world wearing masks. And they, basically, it's a day where they play lots of harmless pranks, like they do sort of flash mob music and dancing, or they make big chalk murals in public squares. And it's meant to be a combined reminder that they are people as well, but also a purging of irresponsibility. Like it's your last Mm. sort of gasp of being irresponsible in a public space before you become responsible for your fellow person. And I I think it started off as that, but now it's an open secret that on that day, a lot of fully qualified doctors might sort of put some masks on and go out and join in as again, as like uh-huh. a reminder of, you know, that you're allowed to be fun and irresponsible sometimes, or your doctor might just like wear a half mask with some ribbons on it or something as like a, a gesture towards yeah. that on that particular day That's of the year. That's fun. That's fun. Um, I love that so much. Yeah. It's really good. <laughs> I have some questions. Yes. Um, is this something that is limited to only the doctors or is this more of like a wider festival day, sort of like a, a feast of fools or a topsy turvy kind of day? The, the people doing this stuff are meant to be just the medical students and the doctors. Okay. But like if somebody, if like a group of like masked people like surges around to where you're like dining out on a cafe or something, then you might like get up and join in the dancing with them, but you're not allowed to wear the mask. 
Okay, so it's going to be more of a sort of tradition that's rooted in the medical school itself rather than yes. in like the broader culture. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. And cool. it probably started as just like a prank that one year of the medical school, they just decided that this is what they were going to do. And then it yeah. got passed down to the next year of the medical school. And now it's become an accepted thing in the community where people quite like this idea of, you know, your doctor getting this day of fun feast of fools uh -huh. kind of thing before they become someone who is considered to be very socially responsible but i i also love it in terms of how it fits in as like a sort of later life adulthood right like okay you've done all this and now you're moving on to the next level so here's your last here's your last gasp yeah to yeah. like do something do something absurdist and childish and that's and so there's so on that level, I really I really like it a lot. Yes, I have another question. Sorry, I have a lot of questions about this one. So since it's a last gasp kind of thing before you take responsibility, do they have a concept of the Hippocratic Oath? Like like the night before you graduate, you go out and you have fun and you do this thing. Like the next day you take your responsibility. Like this must be a very formalized kind of serious thing that they're taking on. I think they, they may not have a specific oath, but I think it is embedded in the culture of medicine that it is a serious profession, that you have a serious responsibility yeah. towards your fellow yeah. people. Yes. And I think that would have to fit in with a festival like that. It couldn't just be, you know, one where doctors look down on the rest of people or else it's considered to be just, this is just a very, you know, a job like any other job. I think it has to go hand in hand with a strong sense of responsibility attached to this profession. And, and because of that, I think there would have to be a certain amount of privilege probably attached to the profession as well i was gonna say maybe something where because you are literally taking on the title of doctor it means that you have a certain amount of responsibility not just in terms of like the work you are doing but how you go about it like they and might the not sort of person that you're pre that you're presenting yourself to be in society right yes there would be expectations of the way you behave yep if you are a doctor in this society then if there is a sick person in front of you you have you will help them yeah so like there's not there's not a question or anything like that like yeah. this is but your, also you would not be expected your... to be seen carousing and like causing public drunken nonsense right on to a day-to-day -day basis sober and serious and yeah yeah that's because you might have to save a life at any moment yeah any that's moment. true that, that could actually be extended to like certain substances being forbidden like among yeah. that profession yeah. If there's an expectation and that you might have to be sober and be, could be called upon at any moment to do your job, maybe you're not allowed to drink or uh, in, you know, yeah. ingest some other substance <laughs> that uh -huh. is popular in that world. And maybe there's this, that's this one day of the year where... This is your last chance to get away with it. Last chance to get away with it. And so probably <laughs> there are some doctors out there who kind of miss it a little bit and you know might make sure that their patients are covered by someone else but that's why they might put the mask on and go out and yeah. do a little bit of like drunken carousing yeah on that one yeah. day a year or i'm also thinking of a group of doctors kind of getting together and having like a designated driver um <laughs> like like we're all gonna hang out and four of us are gonna get drunk and one of us is gonna stay sober just in case anyone in the area needs their life saved <laughs> i mean <laughs> i look you know my pub trivia team is mostly comprised of doctors and on any given you know evening when we go out to pub trivia about half the group will not be drinking because they'll be on night shifts yeah and so yeah. They, they will just be having water or having lemonade cool in those later life ones, like the mask could literally be a thing of like, I am not a doctor right now. Mm. Yeah. See, this is not my face. <laughs> yeah. 
that's all very fascinating. Thank you so much, Freya. What a job. I love it. I love it so much. Love it very much. Love it very much. Well, thank you for having me on. This was fun. Thank you so much for being with us. It was wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on April 15th and we'll be giving you a tasty five-course meal of an episode discussing the world building of food. I can't wait. I'm hungry just thinking about it. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. On the subject of the human body being incredibly resilient, the Russian cult leader slash sorcerer Rasputin was, in a single evening, poisoned, shot once, went on a mad rampage, fell into a snowbank, was shot three more times, beaten, and dumped in an icy river. While many accounts report that he crawled out and died of hypothermia, no, it was the bullets actually. Sorry. <laughs>